All right. Well, this morning, we're going to start off by asking a question. And it's a biggie. Um, and I'm going to need your help. Otherwise, it's going to get real quiet real quick because I'm looking for interaction. So please don't be shy. Um, this is meant to really just allow us to kind of get some of the juices flowing, okay? So the first question I want to ask all of us, and I want you to shout it out, and I'm sorry, Mark, ahead of time. I'm going to walk in front of that speaker. Um, I want you to help me answer the question, who is God? You know, just a small one. It's, a, it's not a big deal. Um, who is God, or how would you describe God? So just go ahead and shout it out if you've got something that pops in your mind. Creator. Great. Keep it going. Awesome. Mm. Eternal. All-powerful. Great. Father. Oh, I just did all-father. No. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> all-powerful. What else? Judge. Great. Peace. Ooh, goody. King. Mm. Mm -hmm. Love. Sovereign, yeah. I think. Judge. Good, yes. All knowing. What else? Forgiving. Hmm. Faithful. What was that? In truth. There we go. Put that right next to it, yeah. Hope. Very good, Elisa. Very good. Mysterious. Oof. Yeah. Whoa, we just got an omni thrown out there. That's good. That's great. Perfect. Omniscient. Let's see. Yeah, let's just get a lot of these omnis on there. Good. Omniscience. There we go. <laughs> Omnipotent. Very good. Very good. We just we got them going now. Omnipotent. These are the ones I never know how to spell well, though. So this is where omnipotent. Yeah, there we go. NT, New Testament. Good. Yes, New Testament. Just kidding. The Lord. Goody, goody, goody. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I need, I need. Very good. Yes. Spirit. Peace. Who said that one? Good job, girl. Yes. Whoa. Yep. Okay, now we're going to switch gears just a little bit, okay? I want you um, this morning, imagine you're sitting across from a neighbor, a friend, a coworker who doesn't know Christ, um, is starting to explore who God is. How would they describe God? Or maybe you're here this morning and you're kind of rediscovering what Christianity is all about, who God is. What comes to your mind when you hear the word God? Okay, so this is a slightly different angle. Yeah. Overwhelming. Oh, good one. Yes. 
misunderstood. <laughs> yes, judging, adding, oh yeah, that has a different connotation than judge, right? Good. Helpless. What was it? Angry. Great. Not real. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That should have been, that should have been the obvious one. That's good. That's great. Yes, very good. What was that? Wrathful. Mm, with a W. Good, yes. Yeah. Anything else? Just sitting across the table, what, what are some of the things that are popping in their mind? What are some of the things popping in your mind? Hum- Good job. Human construct. Okay. Contradictory. A stickler for the rules. We'll take phrases. I like that. Stickler. It's good. Gramps. Yeah. Gray-haired Gramps. Yeah. Kind of an irresponsible generosity. Almost like... (laughs) Mysterious, maybe, maybe in a different sense. Good. And then, just to kind of round out our situation here, I'm going to add just a couple of things. Um, these little things that we make ultimate things in our lives. In Christianity, we call those idols. Um, but as we think about them today, they can be material or they can be mental. They can be personal or impersonal. Really, there are the things in our lives, we may never verbalize it, but deep within the recesses of our hearts, we're trusting that they'll give us the life we've always longed for. So, for example, we could throw out school or work. We think and we believe that if we work the exorbitant amount of hours that are necessary, we'll finally feel and hear that affirmation, well done from our peers that I'm finally worth it in this world. We could put money on the side here as well. Finally, if we, we believe that if we have enough money, we can have ultimate comfort and security, and finally my anxiety will be put to rest. If I have just enough money, if I just get enough. Or we could put sex in here too. The, the feeling that if we have some sort of intimacy with anyone, or maybe if we're honest with ourselves, with someone special, finally they'll confirm that I'm wanted and the great desire for acceptance. You see, the whole of life, it revolves around this little word called trust. And every day we're making decisions about who or what is worthy of our trust. And if we step back and look now at the list that we have here on the board, we get a glimpse of just how complex our functional understanding of who God is, is. And really, we trust in a more unholy trinity. We trust in the God we say exists, but we don't believe it. 
We trust in the God who doesn't exist, but we think he does exist. And then we trust in all these little things that we revolve our lives around. And it can get pretty complex. It feels very hectic, our complex functional understanding of who God is really in our lives. You see, wrong ideas about God can wear us out. Wrong ideas about God can wear us out. And it's really no wonder we wrestle with living these anemic lives. Why we, why we can't find victory over the continual disastrous cycles that are in our lives of sin. Why, we, why we've given up on prayer. Why we have no passion to share with our neighbor, our coworker, or our friend the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Why we feel so impatient, irritable, or frustrated. Why we're so tired. Wrong ideas about God. Who he is, really. What he's like, really. They wear us out. Wrong ideas of God wear us out. Now, I'm sure there's nothing really harder than knowing an invisible God and trusting him with everything. And that's exactly what he wants from us, isn't it? He wants us to trust him with our singleness, our, our children, our money, our jobs, everything. But do we? And if not, why not? And you may think, okay, Gabe, you're a pastor. You know, you're paid to think about these questions. But before I was a pastor, and even still while I'm a pastor, these are the questions that haunt me every day. Who do I see God to be? Who is he really? You know, and I think about all these smaller questions. They can easily be summed up into one big, hairy, challenging question. Of, is your God big enough? Is your God big enough? Because really, when we don't trust God, it's not because we think he's too big, right? It's because we, don't, we think he's too small. He's, he's too small to really see what's going on in my life. He's, he's too small to have the emotional energy to deal with me right now. He's, he's too small to really have the power to act in his world. He's, he's too small to have the answers to some of the life's biggest questions. Is your God big enough? And the good news is, we're not the first people to feel this way in history. Kids, you're not asking these questions or raising this question because you're children. It's because you're human beings. <laughs> it's probably been the biggest challenge for human beings since the beginning. Who is God? And so today we're going to walk through a passage, Isaiah 40, that was written to a group of people who are more like us than we'd probably care to admit. And Isaiah wrote this passage to a group of people whose understanding of God continues to shrink as the pain in their life continues to go. They're sent into exile. They're ruled by a cruel nation. And every day they wake up in a place that's not their home. Every day they're treated like garbage and they want to know, God, have you forgotten us? Some of you may be asking that question this morning. God, have you forgotten about what's going on in my life? Do you see this? And in history, in the history of God's people, especially God, in these darkest of moments, he sends these really unusual characters... <laughs> to come and speak to his people and remind them that he's working in his world still, that he's bigger than we give him credit for. And these unusual men were called prophets. <laughs> I mean, they did all kinds of funky things. And the way that, you know, one prophet walked around naked <laughs> and proclaiming, his, that's not going to happen here. Um, you know, proclaiming that God is going to strip Israel of all of its power. I mean, talk about an object lesson. I mean, these were some unusual fellows, 
And they proclaim through this art-filled poetry, wrestling through these misconceived images of who God is. You see, what we believe matters. What we believe matters. And what we believe about God matters. It matters to God what we think about him in the same way that it matters to my wife how I think about her. I don't think about her as a man. I think about her as a woman and not just any woman. I think of her as my wife, the woman, really, um, this big the woman. And what I know and believe about Allie, my wife, directly impacts our relationship. And as you can imagine, correlates to my joy in life. And all, all of this is all the more intensified when we come to our understanding of who God is. You see, it may be devastating. It is devastating to confuse who my wife is and that I will destroy a few relationships in my life. But if you confuse who God is, it impacts every aspect of your life for all of life. What we believe matters. Which is why this summer we're walking through a few topics that we think are crucial to navigating this life well. We'll be asking questions like, does the Bible, does what we believe about the Bible really matter? Does what we believe about Jesus really matter? Does what we believe about the human condition really matter? Or as we've begun to probe this morning, does what we believe about God really matter? Does it change our everyday lives? Is it practical? We think these are actually so crucial that they make up a list of beliefs we've called our doctrinal statement. And after the service, we've actually put these on a larger-than-life bookmark. I mean, who has a bookmark this size? But apparently, we think it's awesome. So we've got this really large bookmark um, that has the 10 key components of our doctrinal statement. And each week, we're going to walk through one of these, targeting one passage of Scripture and asking the question, does that really matter? I mean, we say this is important, but does it, does it really matter for my life? Now, if you're here and you're exploring the Christian faith, this might be the part where you started rolling your eyes and thinking, okay, so you're saying there are wrong ideas about God, which means that there are right ideas about God. Well, who are you to decide which are the right and wrong ideas? That sounds a bit arrogant, doesn't it? Well, first, I just want to say from the get-go, look, we're all learning here, and I don't want to presume to say that I know all the answers to everything. But secondly we each must come to the agreement that each of us has a supreme authority over our lives that we've allowed. For some of my friends who live in the eastern part of the globe, it's community and it's tradition. These are key components of deciding what is true belief, what guides your life. Here in the West, we have individual reason and experience as the primary say on what I believe. And as a Christian, we value both community and reason as valuable tools, but at the end of the day, our supreme authority is God's word. Now, next week, we're going to get into why that is, um, why that's our supreme authority. But this week, we need to ask the question, is this God big enough that we care that he's spoken in history at all or not? So if you haven't already, would you please open your Bibles to Isaiah 40 um, this week we're going to ask the question, is your God big enough and what does it matter or why does it matter? If you're using one of the community Bibles this morning, it's found on page number 387. And as you heard it read, you may not have noticed this, maybe you did, especially if you have some biblical background, 
but this is poetry that you heard read. It doesn't have the same sort of rhyme and rhythm that we're used to in modern poetry, but it's ancient Hebrew poetry nonetheless. So as poetry, it's not the easiest thing to outline in the world. It tends to be more cyclical rather than linear, like a philosophical treatise that we could break down. Rather, poetry, it, it provides us, as we sit, these images after images of the great big God that wash over us like waves at the seashore, over and over and over and over. So for our time together, we're going to zero in into verse, verses 27 through 31 as our primary stepping stones, okay? And then throughout our time together, we're going to dip into some of the imagery elsewhere to kind of build a more robust picture. And our first stepping stone that brings us to a truer understanding of who God is, is knowing that God's more engaged in our life than we often realize. God's more engaged in our life than we often realize or recognize. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Isaiah writes, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Usually when we're in pain, we have this big question mark of, God, have you forgotten about what's going on down here? Maybe God dropped the ball. And whether we'll say it out loud or not, we begin thinking, hey, God, are you paying attention? Is there some huge crisis in Korea right now that's taking up your full attention? Because apparently you don't see that my rights are being infringed upon. And we feel like a castaway on a faraway island waving down a boat from afar because we feel like God has totally forgotten we're there. One person in the Bible who felt hidden from God's sight was an Egyptian woman by the name of Hagar. It's one of the most beautiful stories, I think, in all of the Bible. Because in the midst of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, we find all these promises to Abraham and Sarah. Sarah's been barren for so many years, and God promises Sarah, you're going to have a child, and tells Abraham that his offspring are going to be as innumerable as the star in the skies. And then decades go by, and nothing happens. God, have you forgotten? And so Sarah takes Hagar, her slave, and gives her to Abraham and says, okay, maybe this is the last stitch ever. Why don't you marry Hagar and, and have ch children through her? Maybe that's God's plan. Maybe that's what we're supposed to do. So all this stuff happens where Abraham does marry Hagar. And after all is said and done, Sarah grows in contempt for Hagar so much that she starts abusing her and afflicting her and treating her horribly, so horribly, that Hagar runs away. She can't take it. She would rather take her chances as an isolated woman in the ancient Near East, in the middle of the desert, than be with Abraham and Sarah. So she runs away. But God has been watching Hagar. She's not forgotten. Amidst all the promises to Abraham and Sarah, God meets Hagar at a well in the middle of the desert and says, I see you and I bless you and you're going to have a son and he too will be a ruler of great nations. And you know what Hagar calls God who met her at the well? The God who sees. The God who sees. When everybody else, when nobody else saw her, she says, this God is the God who sees. 
And this is just one story among many where God is more engaged in our world than we realize. He's more aware of our brokenness. He hasn't forgotten us. He's not blind to our plight. And it's not just with the popular people, the Abrahams and the Sarahs, but it's the ones that the world has forgotten. God's still very intentionally engaged and says, I'm there. I'm here with you. And this is why Isaiah, he's quite frankly frustrated with Israel and also follows it up with in verse um, 28. Have you not known? Haven't you heard of the many ways in which God is sovereign and caring over his creation? He kind of shames Israel. (laughs) It's a little bit intense, but that's what the prophets do. Nothing in your life happens that is hidden from God. Nothing. Is your God big enough for that? And if we think that his eyes aren't big enough to see everything that's going on in our lives, it's usually rooted in a bigger misconception of who God is. It's usually rooted in something much bigger that we've skewed in who God is. One of the major reasons we trust someone or something at all is because we believe they have the ability or the power to follow through on what they've promised, right? Well, what do we need to know about God? We have to come to terms with the fact that he's more powerful than we can grasp. Literally, more powerful than we can wrap our minds around. I mean, look with me again at verse 28. Have you not known... Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Friends, God did not originate in the minds of men. But humankind found its origin in the thoughts of God. God is not a human construct. And at the dawn of time, before there was even time, we read in Scripture that God spoke and the world came into being. He spoke. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. With such power that Isaiah says he can measure the whole of the oceans in the hollow of his hand. He can measure and weigh the mountains as though a merchant of spices weighs his spices on the balances, puts the mountains on one side and uses the hills as his balances. This is the God that is portrayed across Scripture. And one of my favorite things to do is to stargaze. I just love looking at the stars. I love searching for Orion and his belt with his sword that's coming off the side. I love the great bear as she's chasing down Leo. You know, I, I remember sitting in the open dry desert of New Mexico after taking a midnight run which is one of the most fun things to do in New Mexico. It's the only time you can run in New Mexico is in the middle of the night because um, it's so hot. And we were up on the top of this plateau, a few friends of mine, and we look up and you just see tons of shooting stars. It's so clear that you begin to see the shooting stars shoot across the innumerable other stars in the skyscape. And there's nothing like looking at the stars that can make you feel utterly tiny look at them, and they're just innumerable. And this is what Isaiah says in verse 26. We heard it read, but to read it again, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one 
is missing. Is this the God you know? Is your God big enough? And yet even here, the most groundbreaking reality isn't even that he creates, but that he outlasts his creation. No matter your perspective on climate change, every scientist holds to the second law of thermodynamics, right? It's the idea that the usable energy in our universe is slowly being used up to the point that it'll all be used up. But not so with God. The second law of thermodynamics doesn't work on God. He's the everlasting God is the language that's used to describe it. I mean, imagine God has no beginning. He has no birthday. (laughs) He has no birthday, no origin. He has always been. Wrap your mind around that. And then he has no ending. He is everlasting, forever going, such that the vastness of the universe is not his equal. And if the universe is not as equal, then most definitely he outsizes the biggest of nations. I mean, we're a lot like Israel here in the United States, I think, um, in that we can so easily get caught up with the rise and fall of these foreign military powers. We can get consumed with who are the, the monetary powerhouses in our globe. And I've known so many people who are ruled by fear of what these foreign nations are possible, or even what the United States is possible of doing. But Isaiah says these strong nations are nothing but a drop in the bucket compared to God. They're similar to the dust that's barely perceivable on those scales. And remember, he's the merchant in this whole metaphor. And if the collective strength of the nations themselves can't compare to the strength of God, then of course he outranks the greatest of leaders. Whether it be Putin, Obama, or Kim Jong-un, God looks down and sees these great rulers like grasshoppers in the field, is the way it's described in Isaiah. One step and crunch, there's the end. Whereas God is described as the universe can barely make a semi-habitable place for God's dwelling. He is so vast in comparison in his power to these great earthly rulers. Is your God big enough? You know what happens when he isn't? you start worrying more about what other people think than what God thinks. You know what happens when he isn't? You start praying more to your doctors than you do to God. You know what happens when he isn't? You think that diseases and natural disasters aren't a part of his jurisdiction. He has no power whatsoever. But we can't stop here when we're talking about power because we all know power isn't just about strength, it's also about smarts, right? Some of the smartest folks in the world don't have physical strength, but they have innumerable power. And what we see is that God outsmarts the wisest teachers. Isaiah says, what, what, man, is, what man has given God counsel on how to design humanity? <laughs> that sounds kind of strange, doesn't it? What, what man has given God the ins and outs of knowledge and wisdom? Who mentored God in the depths of beauty or the ways of love? And the, the answer is meant to be obvious, no one. His Understanding is unsearchable. But someone may object and say, but if you look across the world, you see suffering and injustice. Hasn't God kind of dropped the ball there? Does he really understand what justice is? And I want to ask the question, because this is a common critique, where do you get your concept for justice? Where do you get your longing for justice? It's something that's hardwired into you that each and every one of us longs for justice where if we're in an evolutionary trek without any of God's intervention, why care about justice? Why? If it's survival of the fittest, 
That's just nature doing its work. As Nietzsche always would say, the will to power. The most powerful should dominate and even abuse the weak. But why do we cry for justice? Why? Who decides what is right and wrong? Is it the one who designed justice? Or is it the ones who were born into it who are trying to figure it out? Is your God big enough to outsmart the wisest teachers? You know, there's a story of Abraham Lincoln around the Civil War. And a gentleman came up to him and said, Abraham Lincoln, do you think that God is on your side? And Abraham Lincoln looks back and he replies, Well, sir, my concern isn't whether God is on my side. My greatest concern is whether I'm on his side. Because God is always right. You know, Abraham Lincoln was a big leader, both in stature and in history, but he believed in a bigger God. Is your God big enough? And you know what happens when he isn't? When we think about power, you view him as a bit outdated. You start to pick and choose what parts of the Bible you want to hold on to and which ones you don't. You begin to fudge a little bit on his commands because you think you know how to navigate your life better than God does. You don't think he knows how to fix your relationships or to care for your needs or to watch out for your children, so we go looking elsewhere. Where are you looking? And is your God big enough? Now, so far we've seen from Scripture that God is described as one who's more engaged than we ever realize. And he's more powerful than we can grasp. But quite frankly, this can be the worst news in the world of a cosmic tyrant. Unless... He's not also more generous than we deserve. If he's not also more generous than we deserve, look at what God does with this incomparable power. In uh, in Isaiah uh, 40, verse 29, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait, For the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Every other God, relationship, career, person in your life will take and take and take and take and take until you have nothing left if you make them the ultimate thing. In ancient cultures, and actually quite a few cultures still today outside of the United States, people will go to the silversmith as we read here in Isaiah. And they'll pay a gentleman to create this little idol. And, and, and so after he creates the idol, then they hire someone to come and establish it in their home so it doesn't fall over. And then they bend over and worship this idol. Now, they, they don't really get anything in return except for maybe some really cool feng shui in their living room. But in modern culture, we, we don't create statues to worship them, but we do create goals that we worship. They're invisible to the eye, but they saturate our hearts. And everything that is not God that we make our ultimate goal will demand our all and give us nothing nothing in the end. It may allure us with a couple little treats here and there, but at the end, it does not offer everlasting life. It offers everlasting death. But the true God, the true God of history, the true God of the Bible is the only God who asks for your whole life so that he can share his everlasting life with you. He's the only God big enough to not ask the faint-hearted and the weary to build him up, but he pursues them to give them his strength. 
This is a totally different God than the rest of the world wants to offer. Every other God will crush you, but only this God can lift you up on eagle's wings. Is your God big enough? If he isn't, you won't cry to him when you're in pain. When pain does enter your life, you'll think he's angry at you and always against you. If your God isn't big enough, you'll think he loves everybody else but you. You won't know how to be generous of your time or your money because you feel like God always wants everything from you rather than seeing him wanting to bring everything for you. If this is the God that you're trusting, then it's probably not the God of Scripture, not the God of history, and not the God of reality. And look, there's so much more that we can say about him. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, having limitless knowledge and sovereign power. God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. But why does it matter? Why does it matter? Really what we think about this God. Well, I think there are three big reasons to trust the right things about this big God. And first, the bigger your God, the smaller your alternatives. The bigger your God, the smaller your alternatives. You know, earlier in the book of Isaiah, the prophet tells of his first encounter with God. It was right around the time of King Uzziah's death. And everybody in Israel is asking the question, who's going to rule? What's it going to look like? What's going to happen? And then God shows himself to Isaiah. What does he see? In Isaiah chapter 6, he tells us. Isaiah, he walks up to the temple door and the train of a king's robe, kind of like the bride's train, it was so long, so glorious that it's piled upon itself such that there's barely a crack above the door. And as he looks in, the rest of the temple is full of smoke to the point it almost stings his eyes. And as he looks in, he can see almost a king-like figure seated upon the throne. And as he's making it out, he's describing the details and then it hits him. He's looking not just at a king, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, God Almighty. And as his voice speaks, he shakes the very foundations of the temple and shakes the core of Isaiah. Beings he'd never seen before are encircling above God, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then Isaiah, seeing how great and grand God is, sees how everything, even himself, pales in comparison to God. And he says, woe is me. I'm dead. I'm a man of unclean lips and a community of people that all we do is have unclean lips. He can't imagine anything so grand as who he has just seen. And so when we get to Isaiah 40, verse 18, when he says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? He's seen him and he, now he looks at the idols and says, can you, how, how, how is this possible? Do you even know the real God? God is bigger than anything we can make with our hands. He's more elaborate than anything we can imagine with our minds and more true than our hearts have ever realized. And when we see him as he is, we come to see our idols for what they are. We can throw our money at them. We can spend our time. We can sacrifice our talents. 
but like a carved wood statue, they'll offer nothing in return and never give us what we're truly longing for. The bigger your God, the smaller your alternatives. Secondly, the bigger your God, the better you wait. Look at verse 31 again. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word wait here is synonymous. It's the same word for hope. Okay, When you wait for something, you're hoping that it's coming. And it has the language of trust. What we believe about God matters because when you begin to see the power of God's strength and his smarts, and you trust that he longs to give you and share with you this power, then you can wait in confidence for God's timing. He doesn't have to fit nice and neat into your timetable. But when it doesn't line up with our plans, we can say, God, you are are the all-wise one. You are all-powerful. You could have done this yesterday, but you didn't, and you know better than me, and you want to give me power to sustain. So in your timetable, I will wait. I will hope. I mean, if this God is true, then he never drops the ball. He never forgets you, ever. And he always does what he promises. Isaiah, he paints this picture. In Isaiah 48, he says, The grass withers and the flowers fade over time, but the word of God, not just any God, but this God, the true God, will stand forever. And this is how we're to wait for God. to To be clear, this isn't waiting in a doctor's waiting room for, for God to come get you. This waiting is active. It's good work well done where God has you. And that's why, lastly, the third, the bigger your God, the braver you live. The bigger your God, the braver you live. God shares his power, his strength with us, with those who trust him, so that instead of cowering in the corner, We have the tailwind of God's strength to run without becoming weary, to walk and not faint, such that whatever storms rage in life, we can still soar like eagles. Remember, Israel's in exile. They're slaves. They grow up every day in a place that's not their own, and they're treated like garbage. And Isaiah says, while you wait, you can soar like an eagle. While your master makes you work 20 hours a day and demeans you every aspect of it, you can soar like an eagle. What? What we believe about God matters. Practically, too, because it transforms our prayer life, right? Because I I heard it once said that the size of our prayers reveals the size of our God. The size of our prayers reveals the size of our God. What do your prayers reveal about who you're praying to? Do you pray? Does that then reveal you believe that God doesn't listen or that he doesn't want to listen or he doesn't care to listen? Do you pray? Do you pray for revival and renewal of our downtown? Do you think that God is capable of that? If so, it'll also transform the structure of your daily life. You won't have to work seven days a week. Why? Because God is in control, not you. And you can learn to rest because you know he's in control. But then when you work, you work with him. So you work well and you rest well. God never offers ease in this passage. He offers strength. It's a key distinction. A strength to endure, to continue on, such that in the rest, it takes a lot of work to rest, doesn't it? (laughs) To stop doing things, to say that this job is done and now I'm going to relax and delight in God's good world. That takes a lot of work to rest. 
And that's only possible through God helping us rest from the work outside of the work. You don't have to be driven by anxiety and fear and worry. And only the God that's as big as the God that is portrayed in Bible, the Bible can do that. Only the Lord can do that. And just to close our time out, you see, our God has a name. The word God is actually a title. It's a, it's a category marker for a supreme being. But our God actually has a name, and it was so revered by those who followed him but that they never spoke it. They were afraid to take the Lord's name in vain. So they never spoke it. And actually, in Hebrew script, which is the original language that Isaiah was written in, it was written in consonants. They didn't place the vowels in there. So we don't even know how to pronounce this name that's literally littered all over our passage. This personal name of God. The best we have, if you look... Um, it's, it's actually, it's four consonants. Well, yeah, we'll do it this way. And transliterated into English letters, Y-H-W-H. And the best pronunciation we've got in English is Yahweh. Yahweh. You know, since the, since the name of God wasn't meant to be spoken out of fear that you might take it in vain, they actually developed this technique. And when they were reading God's word, instead of reading the personal name of God, they would replace it with Adonai. Adonai, which means my Lord. My Lord. And almost all English translations actually carry this same sort of movement in their translation. So if you look in your Bibles, this is important. If you look in your Bibles, every now and then you'll see the word Lord in all caps. They're capturing this personal name of God, the same God who brought Israel outside, out of Exodus, the same God who raised up David as their king. This God has a history of doing work. This isn't just any God. This is this God. Now, I know this is a bit confusing, and you're probably wondering, where on earth are we? <laughs> and why are we here? Well, this is critical to understanding who our God is, and this is why. If you look throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus the earliest of followers, and Christians there on after, what do they call Jesus? Adonai. 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 When they called Jesus Adonai, everybody knew in the Jewish culture what they were doing. They were saying, this is the God of the Old Testament here with us. This is not just some mere prophet or priest. This is God in our midst. So much so that the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, these guys knew the scriptures inside and out. And when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, I mean, this guy was so zealous he was killing Christians because how dare you call Jesus Adonai? This is the God of the Old Testament. Don't you dare put him on par with Yahweh. But he encounters the resurrected Jesus and he calls him Adonai. So convinced that Jesus is God incarnate, that in writing to the church in Colossae, he writes this, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of the deity dwelt bodily. This great, huge God that's incomprehensible has become human. 
And this would have been the greatest heresies of heresies for the Jew of Jews, which was the Apostle Paul, unless Jesus really was God and is God. Then it's the greatest news in this world has ever known. Because the God that everybody thought was far off and didn't even notice them, that, that he thought that we were hidden from him, came to a small podunk town, was born as a little vulnerable baby and lived life among us so that he could then sympathize with our weaknesses as we talked about going through the book of Hebrews. This glorious God became a small human being for us. And by the power of his own indestructible life, defeated sin and death, he took the penalty that we deserved in the same vein that Isaiah says, where we say, woe is me, the same cosmic penalty of treason against the ruler of the universe. He takes it upon himself on the cross to pay the penalty for all of us to make a way that we might know this God once again. And three days later, after he dies, he rises and then weeks later ascends to heaven and sends the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit to dwell among us and now mediate this everlasting life, the life and life abundant that Jesus promised here and now. Is your God big enough? Is your God big enough? Because it matters for your whole life through. Let's pray.